0: I have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9 if necessary. And then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to gather together this evening to study your word. We thank you for the fact that your word is absolute truth. It is the means by which we are sanctified. It is the basis on which we live our life. It is that which transforms the thoughts that we have in our soul, teaching us how to live, how to think, how to interact with the world around us on the basis of your, uh, the way you have created everything and the way things are in an absolute sense. Father we pray as we study these things this evening we might be challenged by the life of Abraham that we might be encouraged by the way he grew spiritually and advanced through his tests in the same way that we do and that uh, we would be responsive to the challenge and the encouragement of your word we pray these things in Christ's name amen now if for some reason i start vibrating off the stage tonight or bouncing around I went by Starbucks on the way up here and picked up a venti iced coffee with an extra shot of caffeine. When I got here, Doug Carn had brought me a second one. So I've had two. So I am going to be awake all night long. <laughs> all right, we're in Genesis chapter 12. Now let's go back and look at a review of some things I covered last week. I want to get this embedded in our thinking when we get into Abraham, and we'll be in Abraham for a long time, we're going from Genesis 12 to Genesis uh, 23, and there's a tremendous amount of material to cover here, but we need to think in terms of an overall biblical framework on which to hang all these details, you know, sometimes we can get so bogged down as we go through a study of scripture that sometimes you lose the forest for the trees, we take out that that exegetical microscope and start looking at the cell structure of every leaf. And before long, we're experts in cell structure, but we've forgotten what a tree looks like. And so we have to step back and look at things in terms of their their overall uh, perspective, in terms of biblical teaching. And this is why last time I took, took a little while to talk about the things that the New Testament teaches on the basis... Of Abraham, and the first is justification salvation at phase one I try to make a distinction between talking about just um, turn this back on try to make a distinction between just talking about salvation and justification salvation because the word salvation can mean anything it 's based on the Greek word sozo, and sozo can even mean uh, deliverance from sickness. It basically means to be delivered from something. And so you always have to pay attention to the context of a passage to see what you're being delivered from. Because if you look at say, every time the Bible uses the word saved and think that it refers to what we call phase one salvation or justification, then you can get into some real distorted teaching. Many times in the Scripture, the word saved speaks more of phase two salvation being saved from the power of sin than it does phase one salvation being saved from the penalty of sin at that point of faith alone in Christ alone. So Abram is used as a picture of imputation, justification, Romans chapter 4. Also used of justification and spiritual maturity in James chapter 2.21. That he is justified by faith. This is demonstrated by his uh, willingness to sacrifice Isaac. Of course, that doesn't occur to, until Genesis chapter uh, 21, which is sometime after his phase one justification. And then Abram is a picture of how the believer advances from phase one to phase, to maturity in phase two. How do you get there? This is that walk by faith, Operation Faith Rest Drill. Fourth, he's a picture of election. This is Romans, what's embedded or implicit in Romans 9 through 11, that the choice of Abram and the choice of Israel as a nation is a picture of election. And then fifth, the Abrahamic covenant. And the Abrahamic covenant really for the believer in terms of application becomes a picture of positional truth for the believer. A picture of positional truth. Now, I don't know if that's a new term for some of you, but it's a tremendously abstract doctrine for a lot of folks. All of a sudden, you start talking about positional truth, and it's like something just flew over their head, and they're going, what was that? I don't know what you're talking about, positional truth. This is a, a doctrine, at least in terms of terminology, is rarely taught anymore, and most Christians don't understand who they are in Jesus Christ and what we as believers have been given at the instant of salvation that is ours permanently that we can't lose, included, of course, in this is uh, eternal security. This is a major problem today. Most Christians just don't understand all of the spiritual assets that God gave us at the instant of salvation. And so when we get into this initial section with Abram in Genesis chapter 12, the analogy that we want to bring over for application has to do with understanding positional truth, what we have permanently in Christ. Because with Abram, he's not in Christ. He doesn't have these things permanently in Christ, but he has something that's his permanently and unconditionally, and that's what's been given him in the Abrahamic Covenant. And so we looked at that review last time with the Abrahamic Covenant. I want to draw the the parallel with positional truth. Positional truth for the believer begins at the instant of salvation. At the instant that you put your faith alone in Christ alone, there are at least... 40 different things. I've seen lists that it to 50. You know, one, one of the line items in the 40 things that Christ did for you at the point of salvation are eight ministries of the Holy Spirit. So it just depends on how you want to count them up, how you want to make them line items. If you want to make all the ministries of the Spirit one line item, or if you want to make each ministry of the Holy Spirit a distinct line item, however you do it, ultimately it's all based on, a breakdown that Lewis Berry Chaffer had in his systematic theology that was originally 33 things that uh, Christ did for you at the instant of salvation. But these are our eternal realities, what we have in Christ, and it's based on a unique ministry of the Holy Spirit to this age called the baptism, literally translated the baptism by means of God the Holy Spirit. Baptism signifies... Identification, that's always its significance. When you talk about meaning, meaning can have a couple of different nuances. You have a literal word-to-word transference meaning where baptism means to dip or plunge or immerse. But the significance of baptism in various actions in history, was always to show an identification of something with someone else. For example, in the in the uh, ancient Greek armies, the, the new recruits, the hoplites, after they finished basic training, would take their spears and they would dip them into a bucket of pig's blood. And that was to show identification now with blood and with violence. And it was an initiatory right into... The Greek army. And this is the same idea that you have with baptism. Whether you were talking about believers' water baptism, or whether you're talking about baptism by means of the Spirit, or any of the other eight baptisms in the New Testament, baptism always signified identification with something and initiation into a new state. So when you think of baptism, two words ought to come to your mind, and we'll. Repeat them over and over again. We don't want anybody to forget. We'll have initiation and identification, and that's what happens with the baptism by means of the Spirit. We are identified with Christ and initiated into a new life because we have been crucified with Christ. Uh, Romans chapter one, uh, six verses one through five. Baptism by means of the Holy Spirit. At the same time, we're reconciled to God. We are redeemed. We are regenerated. We become, uh, we have a new human spirit. We're adopted into the royal family of God. We become a new creation, a new creature in Christ. We are freed from the power of the sin nature. Before you became a believer, you were a slave to the sin nature. No matter what you did, it was under the power of the sin nature. Oh, but I was good. I was moral. I did kind things for people. Yeah, but it all came from your sin nature. The sin nature can produce morality as well as immorality. The sin nature can produce good deeds as well as what we think of as sinful deeds. The good deeds are produced by the area of strength. Sin is produced by the area of weakness. Of course, you all have studied the sin nature many, many times, and I don't need to go into detail on that right now. But at salvation, we no longer have to follow the dictates of the sin nature. Now you may feel that tremendous tug from the sin nature. You may feel that urge from the sin nature that you just feel like you have to get angry or lose your temper or spin yourself into debt or... Uh, be irresponsible or lazy or give in to various lust patterns, whatever it may be, you may feel like that's just as irresistible. But see, now you have the indwelling Holy Spirit, you have the filling of the Holy Spirit, and you have the promises of the Word of God to claim so that you don't have to yield to that that urge, that tug, that habit pattern of sinful behavior that you always had as an unbeliever. That's why there is real freedom in Christ. It doesn't mean it's easy I was just thinking about this this afternoon in reference to uh, what's going on in Ukraine. There seems to be, I don't want to hang this doctrine on a historical situation that you don't know what's going to happen, So, but there seems to be a certain movement in Ukraine right now toward freedom. I spent some time today with uh, Jim and Phyllis, and we were talking about it and how he and I are both surprised that, there's this sudden, seems like this sudden heart for freedom among the Ukrainian people. We would not have uh, anticipated that. But nevertheless, there seems to be this, this desire for freedom, and you have this struggle between Yushchenko and um, the other guy's name I can never remember, uh, Yanukovych. And we don't know how it's going to work out. I read an editorial in the New York Times this last Sunday, seemed to suggest that this was going to be a pushover that, More and more power blocks in Ukraine seem to be shifting sides. You know, they're wetting their finger and sticking it up in the air and testing the wind. And, oh, well, we better shift sides now. But there seems to be this this upswell, this desire for freedom on the part of the people. But if you look at history, whenever a people has this urge, this desire to be free, or they are given freedom, it's one thing to be given freedom. It is another thing to live Free. Think about it. It is difficult to live free because when you live free, you have to take responsibility for every decision and every action. This is why there's been a consistent movement in the history of the United States towards an erosion of our freedom and our rights. Because as you look back over the history of the United States, you realize that people 100 or 150 or 200 years ago had a tremendous level of freedom that we don't enjoy anymore because when you have real freedom there's also the there's not only the freedom to succeed but the freedom to fail and to the degree that you're free to 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 fail you're also free to succeed to that same degree but if you limit you put that safety net under there and you limit that that failure option you also cut off the top and you limit that opportunity to succeed and so freedom is a is a powerful thing. It's also a very difficult thing to live out. And that is true in the Christian life. You as a believer are free not to sin. Think about that. Think about what that means. You're free not to sin. Now, for most of us, we think too often in terms of, well, I've got 1 John 1 9, I'm free to sin, or as Jim coined the term, prebound. Come on, y'all can laugh a little bit. Prebound, you just confess your sin beforehand and then you just sail right on through. See, it's often easier to sin and confess it afterwards than to deal with the struggle, the temptation, to not sin and apply the promise. And as I talked about the other night, James 1, endure, hang in there, stay under, The adversity by applying doctrine day in, day out, consistently, and not saying that's what it means. Freed from the sin nature, I'm free not to sin. We get a new life in Christ, totally new basis for living, new concept of what life and living is all about. Jesus said, I came not like a thief to steal and destroy, but I came to give life and to give it abundantly. So we have new life. We have the various ministries of God, the Holy Spirit. I just have a few listed here. We're sealed by the Spirit. We're indwelt by the Spirit permanently. Our body is made a temple for the indwelling of God the Son. Now, all of that has to do with positional truth. We can't lose it. It is unconditional. What do we mean by unconditional? It means that it's not based on anything that I've ever done, anything I will ever do or anything that you've ever done or will ever do. Now, that, when you really come to grips with what unconditional means in terms of the unconditional gift of salvation, the unconditionality of this covenant that God made to Abraham, we realize as a personal reality in our own lives that when we fail, God's love is unconditional. It's still there that completely does away with the whole guilt motivation thing that is so prevalent in religion. It's almost a byword to think about uh, guilt as a major feature in certain uh, pr- denominations, whether uh, or in certain religious groups. You know, often people laugh about Jews and Roman Catholics or the brunt of jokes by late-night comedians about guilt, and, and yet the Christian life guilt isn't the motivation because sin was taken care of at the cross. So no matter how grossly we fail, no matter how egregious our sins may be, no matter how much we embarrass ourselves disappoint others, no matter what happens, God's love is always the same because it's never, ever based on what we do. It's never based on what we're going to do. It's based on... What Jesus Christ did on the cross, and that's it, and our possession of His perfect righteousness. Now this is something that Abraham has to learn in terms of this covenant that God gave him. And we're going to see that this is a point of analogy for application between studying Abraham in the Old Testament where he doesn't have the filling of the Spirit, he's not sealed with the Spirit, he's not baptized into Christ... But he has something that is just as real in terms of positional truth. And that is the Abrahamic covenant. I'm going to skip through this part of the slide and go on and uh, skip through this. Look at the Abrahamic covenant itself. This is what's covered in the first three verses of chapter 12. And there's three elements to this covenant. There is a promise that God is going to give him the land, a specific piece of real estate. This is defined further in Deuteronomy 30, and it's called the land covenant as as it's explained there. And he's going to uh, be promised descendants, specifically a seed, which ultimately culminates in the Lord Jesus Christ. But the expansion of the seed paragraphs is in 2 Samuel 7, uh, 14 and following. And then there's the blessing. And this is expanded in the new covenant, which is developed in Jeremiah chapter 31, and this is blessing for all nations. They'll all be blessed through Abraham. Now, I want you to think about this. Abraham is told unconditionally, you've got three things. You've got land, you've got seed, you've got blessing. This is your reality to live on the basis of. See, when we enter into relationship with Christ, the point of faith alone and Christ alone, God gives us a, a different package. It's just as real. Now, what Abraham has to learn in the process of his spiritual growth and his spiritual advance, is what is it that God has given him that's unconditionally his, no matter what happens experientially. See, this is a problem with so many believers today, and I'll never forget uh, a way Dr. Ryrie had of putting it. Years ago when I was at Dallas Seminary, and Dr. Ryrie uh, had Dr. Ryrie for a couple of courses, he said men, back in those days only men were allowed at Dallas Seminary, it's a, men, you have to remember that you judge the Bible uh, the Bible judges experience. You do not judge the Bible by experience. The Bible judges experience. You don't judge the Bible by experience. Time and time again, your experience, may seem to run counter to what the Bible says. In fact, many times our experiences or the experiences of some people seem so real, so vibrant, so intense, that they're just convinced that God spoke to them. They're just convinced that they saw Jesus in a dream. They just know it was Jesus that healed them. Well, wait a minute. What does the Bible say? Well, we must be misunderstanding that passage because this was so real it had to be God speaking to me. See, what they've done is they've had an experience. It seems so real, so overpowering, so self-evident that they're using that now to judge the Bible. One of the worst cases, and I think one of the toughest cases, I've never had this problem so I don't relate to it. I don't feel their pain is people who struggle with eternal security. Now, I don't know if you've ever had that problem. I've never had that problem. I was taught when I was a little kid that I had salvation. I could never lose it. And I said, great, I understood that. And that was never a problem for me. But I know that there are some folks who just have a desperate struggle with eternal security. They just can't understand how God can still love them when they did that or when this event happened to them. And sometimes this is related to some pretty horrible things in life, children that are, um, have been sexually abused or uh, others who have been victims of some sort of, of, uh, of abuse, whether it's mental, emotional, or physical. Uh, sometimes they're so embarrassed over what has happened, there's such a deep level of shame and humiliation that they just can't seem to get past that to understand the grace of God. And yet, this is exactly what I'm talking about, is we are to judge our experience by the Word of God, not the other way around. No matter how shamed we may be, no matter how guilty we may feel, no matter how horrible some situation may be, the Bible tells us that God has given us certain things of salvation that are irrevocable. We cannot lose them. They are ours forever because they're not based on who we are, or what we've done, but they're based on who Jesus Christ is and what He did on the cross. And they're based on His righteousness, which we possess, and not on our righteousness. And that's coming to grips with the impact and the importance of positional truth. Positional truth is this seemingly abstract theological doctrine. How in the world does that impact where I live, some people say. You know, here I am, I'm struggling with trying to... Pay my bills i've got uh, I've got a husband that's a drunk, I've got a wife that beats me. You know, I've got kids that are doing drugs after school. How does positional truth really meet my needs? Well, if you understand it, it does, and that's a problem. It takes time to understand these things. and unfortunately, we live in a world and in a generation and in a time when people don't want to take the time to study and learn. And they want to base all their decisions on how I feel. They want to base everything on, well, it just doesn't doesn't seem to resonate with me. You never think about all this terminology and verbiage that's so popular today, and it just enters into the common, everyday discourse where we base everything on how you feel. Well, how did you feel about that? You don't have find people saying, well, what do you think about it? Nobody wants to cogitate anymore. They just want to emote. So... We have to look at what the realities are that we have in Christ in the same way that Abraham had to learn what God gave him in that covenant. And as we go through Genesis, I want to point out that there's at least 10 or 15. depends on how you break it down, where you look, what elements you want to look at. But there's at least 10 or 15 reiterations of the Abrahamic covenant between Genesis 12 and Genesis 15. And if you just talk, talk about individual elements, whether you break out the seed or the land promise or blessing, there you can even come up with more. God continuously is reminding Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, look, this is what I have given you in the covenant. It's yours Now live in light of that reality. And that's the same thing that God is saying to each one of us day in and day out in the Christian life. You have to understand all those spiritual blessings that I gave you at salvation. That's what Paul talks about in Ephesians 1.3. That we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Not most of them. Not some of them. But every one of them, there is nothing that you lack as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no problem, there's no difficulty, there's no challenge in life that you and I can't meet on the basis of a promise in the Word of God, a principle in the Word of God, or a provision that God has made in the spiritual life. But before you can meet it on the basis of those promises, principles, and provisions, you have to know what they are. And most Christians are operating in a vacuum. They don't know what they are. They couldn't list two spiritual assets or three spiritual assets to save their life. So they have to learn those things. Well, this, was a, this is the process of spiritual growth. We have to learn these things. So Abram had to learn what he had in that Abrahamic covenant. In Genesis 12-4, after God commanded Abram to leave, we're told, so Abram departed, verse 4, departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now, as we get into this section of Genesis, and we go from Genesis 12 to 23, dealing with the life of Abraham, I have, at this point, identified 12 tests. I think the first time I mentioned it, I had identified 10, but I've gone through it and I don't count real well. As you get to know me, you'll realize that I get along with numbers about like oil gets along with water. You know, I just don't go there. I'm a liberal arts guy. I'm not a science guy. There are 12 tests that I've identified that Abram goes through. And each one of these episodes where, where we're talking about in, in, in Abraham's life is an episode that deals with the test. When you have the invasion of the, of the uh, kings under Keterleomer, that's a test related to what? Blessing. When it comes along later on and and Sarah says, well, I'm still not pregnant. Uh, Let's try human viewpoint solution and we'll bring in Hagar and we'll try to create the seed on our own that way. Well, that's a test related to what? The seed. Then you get these other elements where Abram has a test and he decides to go outside the land keep his life going, and keep body and soul together, and that's a test related to the land. See, every one of these 12 tests ultimately comes back to what? Have you understood positional truth in terms of the Abrahamic covenant? I promise you three things, land, seed, and blessing. And every test, every one of these 12 tests relates to either land, seed, or blessing. So when you come into your Christian life, and we trust Christ our Savior, and we have our 40 things that... Christ gave us at the instant of salvation that are our spiritual reality, we have to learn to live on the basis of that. So guess what our tests are going to relate to? Not just the three three things like Abraham's had. We have tests related to these 40 things, so we have to understand what our spiritual assets are and what the promises in Scripture are. It's who we are in Jesus Christ, that is the new identity of the believer. And part of the problem with so many believers is their their soul is so loaded with human viewpoint, they they think like a pagan. They reason like a pagan. When something happens in life, they immediately interact with that event like a pagan. They have not gone through any kind of mental overhaul because there hasn't been a detailed study of the Word of God where they have been challenged to quit thinking like an unbeliever and start thinking like a believer. And the starting point is to figure out who you are in Jesus Christ. You are no longer the same person the day after salvation that you were the day before salvation. You're a completely new creature in Christ. You've been overhauled positionally. And you have to come to grips with what does that mean? I mean, this is phenomenal. This never before happened in history to the degree that it's happening to every single believer in the church age. We are a new creature in Christ, a new creation. So we're told in Genesis twelve four. so Abram departed. Now that departure is directly related to the command back in verse 1. In verse 1, God tells Abram that he is to, this is the first mandate, he is to leave. Now this occurred before the events right at the end of chapter chapter 11. Chapter 11 get, at the end gives us sort of the overall, that, that they left, they went up to Haran, and then uh, they lived there until Terah until died. And then verse 1 of chapter 12 is sort of a flashback. Now the Lord had already said this to Abram had told him to get out of your country. Now, this is the first test. So if you're going to keep track of the 12 tests in Abram's life, this is the first one. Abram, are you willing to leave everything behind and go to the land that I'm going to give you? And that, even though we have land, seed, and blessing emphasized in verses 1 through 3, it is primarily the land element that is emphasized here. You have to leave and go somewhere. And that's the command... And it is the cow imperative of the Hebrew verb halak. The cow imperative of the Hebrew verb halak. Looks like this H A L A K. Cal imperative. Imperative means it's not an option. Not an option. Now, when we get down to verse 4, and we're told, So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him. I wonder what that word for depart is. See, now it's the cow perfect of halak. See, the Holy Spirit uses the same word to connect these things in the reader. You don't notice that in the English because verse 1, the translators use the, used the word get out. And in verse 4, they use the word depart. See, they should have used the same word in English in order to tie the two together. Abram is obeying God, but like most of us in spiritual infancy, when we obey God, Our obedience is not always 100% perfect. We obey God. I mean, Abram obeyed God. He got out. But see, God told him to get away from your family and from your father's house. And when he left to go to Haran, he took his father with him and he took Lot with him. There's only partial obedience. And he stays there. He doesn't go all the way to the land. He stays there until his father dies. Before he moves on, Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and a lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. So finally he moves on. That's That's like most of us. We just sort of finally get the picture, a little bit of partial obedience, three steps forward, two steps back, or for some of you, two steps forward and three steps back. But eventually we get there. And this is the way it is with Abram. He's at spiritual infancy. Now, I want you to notice this. And I, I've got to work on, on these tests more. But what's interesting is the very first test has to do with family. First test had to do with family. Get out and leave your family. Oh, Lord, well, I'll get out, but I'm, I won't take my family with me. What's the last test? The last test is God says, I want you to sacrifice your son your only begotten son. Abram says, great, where, Lord, when? I'm on my way. See the difference from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity? He doesn't even bat an eye when God tells him to sacrifice Isaac. Back in Genesis 12, he doesn't even want to leave leave his family behind. He's going to take them along with him. But by the time he gets to spiritual maturity, he's instantly responding, okay, I'll do it where, when, I'm ready. Because he knew doctrinally that God had promised him that seed and he had learned experientially that God is going to fulfill every detail of His promises so that when God told him to sacrifice the seed He had promised, Abram knew, according to Hebrews 11, that God would raise him from the dead. Now, Abram had never seen resurrection. He had never... I mean, we have the basis of the New Testament. We have the miracles of Jesus. We have miracles that occurred with the apostles in Acts. We have all this other evidence... This time, Abram had no evidence, no story of resurrection. And yet, he's willing to trust God because he learned experientially in his spiritual growth how to apply the realities of those initial covenants. So Abram finally uh, will obey God. So we have this this juxtaposition of the partial obedience related to the family at the beginning and this complete instantaneous obedience, as he's reached spiritual maturity. Now we come to verse 5 and we're told, Then Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his brother's son and all the possessions that they had gathered and the people whom they had acquired. That's slavery. They had picked up slaves in Haran and these were were servants. And there is no... What's interesting in the Bible, and we'll get off onto this later on, but I, I used to love teaching this uh, with various mixed audiences, shall we say, that slavery in the Bible is not condemned as an institution. Now immediately you're probably thinking, there, wait a minute, what? there's something wrong with that. No, slavery is never condemned. Think about it. You go through the Bible. Find me one passage that condemns slavery as an institution. You can't. You can find certain passages that condemn certain practices of slavery, but you won't find slavery condemned. Now, you get in the Mosaic Law, slavery is authorized. Now, if the Mosaic Law is the highest and greatest expression of God's will for man in terms of human government, why isn't there a condemnation of slavery? Because slavery as an institution can be productive, and that's where the regulations work. It wasn't lifelong slavery. It wasn't chattel slavery like it was practiced in the U.S. and in the Roman Empire and other civilizations. It was more of what we would call an indentured uh, servitude. It was for a limited period of time so that a person could work himself out of debt. It was always related to a person eventually recovering freedom, but those protections were built into the Mosaic Law so that every seven years all slaves were to be freed. So if you got yourself into debt and you were head over heels in financial problems, you could enslave yourself to someone so you could pay off the debt. If you did it at the beginning of the seven-year cycle, then you had six years to pay it off. If you did it at the fifth year, then you were only a slave for two years and then you became free. But you see, the principle here is that God doesn't regulate sin. God condemned sin. God regulated slavery. He didn't condemn it. If slavery in principle was wrong, God would have condemned it as sin. But he didn't condemn it. Now, that may be tough for some of you to handle, but see, it was all geared in the Mosaic Law to freedom. It is how you practice it that was so important. And so Abram is following, of course, at this stage. This is not uh, practicing slavery in the way it was to be later uh, Later. Defined in the Mosaic Law, where there would be an opportunity for freedom. Incidentally, under the Mosaic Law, if you wanted to be a permanent slave, it was up to your own volition. You could, you weren't born in that state. You didn't stay there because of somebody else's volition. You voluntarily entered into it, and you pierced your earlobe with an awl so that it would be assigned to all everyone that you uh, were there voluntarily. So it always honored volition, honored freedom, and gave people a way out. And that is very different from the way uh, slavery as an institution was pra- is practiced by most uh, civilizations down through history. So they had their, their possessions, and Abram was one of the wealthiest men in the ancient world. Later we'll see the degree of his wealth, but he was uh, comparable to a Donald Trump or Bill Gates of his generation. He had numeral, numerous servants, slaves, and... Uh, and their families to take care of. When the, there's the invasion of the kings from the east under Ketterleomer, he takes 300 plus servants with him. He, t- he virtually mounts a, uh, a small army from his employees. So he's responsible for those plus their families. Now the reason that I'm, I'm emphasizing that is because this is not like Pastor Dean loading up a, truck in Connecticut and moving 2,000 miles down to Texas, that was a real pain. I hope I don't have to go through this anymore. I really do. I mean, the disruption of moving across town is bad enough, but moving across the country is even worse. But that was only two of us. I can't imagine what it would be like to pack up for 300 employees and their families and moving an entire uh, business operation, which is what Abram was. He had his own corporation, as it were, with all of his employees, i.e. slaves, and, and their families. Then he's responsible for the welfare of all these people. And he has to move them from Haran up in, up in Syria down into uh, the promised land, down into Canaan. And when he gets to Canaan, he's going to move up and down through Canaan, and he's going to be doing it with all these people. We forget that he's got, and we think, oh, it's just Abram and Sarah, and they're just moving around their little tent. No, get rid of that whole idea. Get rid of that whole notion. This is a major operation of uh, moving all of these people and all of these goods, all of his cattle, all of his sheep, all of his camels, all of his possessions. This is an extremely wealthy man, and to move calls for a tremendous amount of logistics. It calls for organization, it calls for administration, and it's not easy. This is a real challenge to trust God. And so that's what he's doing. So Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people whom they had acquired or purchased in Haran, and they departed to go to the land of Canaan. So they came to the land of Canaan. This is where they enter into the reality of spiritual truth. Now when we get to this section of Genesis 12, we ought to ask some questions of the text. Verse 6 we read Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem as far as the terebinth tree of Morah. And the Canaanites were then in the land. Now that's just a little note from Moses to remind us that this place wasn't empty. There were people living there. They had cities, villages, towns, business operations, trading. It was all going on there. They were settled. And here comes uh, Abram. And then God gives him a promise in verse 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your descendants I will give this land. There's the second iteration of this land promise that's the issue at stake right now when we come to the test that will follow in verse 10 it's related to the promise that was just given when god teaches us something doctrinally and we learn that in our soul or maybe we don't but at least we've been exposed to that truth frequently what's going to happen is god is going to take you through a test to give you an opportunity to apply what you just learned what you say you just learned this is one reason why I've quit teaching the book of James for a while. You know, the first verse, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. I'm getting tired of going through the test. Y'all can laugh. Come on, lighten up a little bit. The first ten years I was in ministry, I taught James ten times. I don't want to go through any of that ever again. It's on tape. Get the tapes. Okay. So when we come to this section and Abram is moving through the land, first he goes to Shechem and then God appears to him there. And then in verse 8 we read, And he moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel. And he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. And then Abram journeyed still to the south. So he goes from, he goes from Shechem to Bethel and Ai and then down to Negev. What's going on here? Why is this important? It's very important. It's foundational to the rest of the New Testament. It just seems like it's there, but why would the Holy Spirit put this here? So we need to ask these questions or answer them. First of all, what was the Bible's intention in describing Abram's journey as it does? Why did God the Holy Spirit give us this information? Why is this so important? We just think, well, that's just geography. Let's move on and get to the doctrines. Get to the really important stuff here. Well, this is foundational. It goes from Shechem to Bethel Negev. Why is that important? Second question. Why was the land divided into these three basic regions? The northern area down to Shechem. Second, you have this central area from Shechem to Bethel. And then third, that region in the south, south of Bethel. Why does the scripture divide it up this way? This, and the hint is, that this becomes foundational. As you go through the whole history of Israel and the rest of the Old Testament, these three areas become fundamental. And you see that even in the time of Joshua when they came into the land to conquer it, where do they go? They go to Shechem, they go to Bethel, they go to the Negev. What happens in the book of Judges? Where are the the hot spots in, in Israel during that time? Same three places. This becomes uh, central to understanding the rest of the, of the, uh, Old Testament. So we have to do a little study in geography. And then we ask, answer the question, why did Abram build altars here? What's going on in this passage? Why is this significant historically, theologically, doctrinally, and why does it matter to us? Well, we need to do a little study. First of all, in verse 6, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, as far as the Terebinth tree, or in some places it says an oak tree, we're not sure exactly what that is from the Hebrew, um, to the Terebinth tree of Morah, and the Canaanites were then in the land. Well, Shechem is first mentioned in the Bible in connection with Abram's journey here into the land of Canaan. At Shechem, the Lord appears to him and announces in verse Seven that, God, that he will give this land to Abram and to his descendants. This is a fulfillment of the promise God initiated with Abram in the uh, initial pre-covenant statement of verses 1 through 3. And so for this reason, Shechem then becomes a critical pl- place in the history of Israel because they can go to Shechem historically and say, This is the place where God gave the land to Abram. You know, no so-called Palestinian can do that. I mean, this is one of the fascinating things about the Bible. The Bible is anchored in space-time history. It's anchored in geography. You don't find, uh, well, the Mormons try to do it, but they've got one of the greatest archaeology schools in the whole world over there in Utah trying to prove the Book of Mormon. They haven't found a single artifact yet to back it up, and they won't. Uh, no other religion anchors itself in history and geography as the Bible does because the bible is anchoring itself in reality. see this isn 't just something you people dreamed up and we believe it because it it makes us feel good about ourselves because it it 's somehow we 're going to we 're going to create a reason for our existence it 's reality it 's the truth it 's grounded in space time history this is the reason that That when, um, when the Jews went into the land, when they crossed the river Jordan and come into the land, Joshua is told to, to build a rock cairn with twelve stones, one for each of the twelve tribes. So that what? What's the text say? So that when your children and your children's children ask you, why does, what, what do those rocks stand for? You can go back and tell them all the things that God did for them in history, how He brought you out of the land of Egypt and took you through the wilderness and brought you across uh, the River Jordan. All of these things are grounded in history. So history is crucial for for understanding the Bible, which gives Christians a, a view of history that is unique. This is one of the reasons that the history and the teaching of history, is under such attack today in the cosmic system and the university because if you can destroy history and the significance of history, then one of the uh, effects or the collateral damage from that is it, uh, it's an indirect assault on the Bible. Later on in Genesis, when Jacob, who is Abram's grandson, returns from Padan Aram where he's gone to get his wife, one of the first things he does is to enter the land and he builds an altar to the Lord at Shechem in Genesis 33:18 to 20. At that time, uh, Jacob dug a well there, and that is referred to historically as Jacob's well. And that plays into the New Testament when you have Jesus stopping in Samaria at, uh, at the woman at the well it's this same uh, area and so it is uh, that when you get to John chapter 4 you have to go back and look at the history of Shechem and the well and all this plays into the background of that particular text so these little events that you just want to pass over when you read through the text are crucial for understanding so much more that happens In the course of the rest of the Bible. And it helps build that framework of what's going on uh, in the scripture. After the Israelites had conquered Canaan under uh, Joshua, they built an altar at Shechem. And when they built that altar, it was accompanied by a covenant renewal ceremony where they're basically reiterating uh, the covenant with God. What's going on here? It's positional truth. It's recognizing who and what we are. Whenever the Jews were in the land, it's almost uh, analogous to the believer when, when, to the believer experiencing his, the blessings of being in fellowship. When you're out of the, and, and, be, and the blessing of being in fellowship occurs, the, the result of be, realizing what we have in positional truth. When we're out of fellowship, we're not going to experience the the blessings of what we have in positional truth. We're going to be out of fellowship. When we're back in fellowship, we're going to realize the benefits of everything that we have uh, in Christ. At the close of his life, Joshua again gathered the tribes of Israel together at Shechem and reviewed all of God's gracious dealings with Israel. Once again, this emphasis on God did this at this time, he did this at that date. It's it's history. God works in space-time history. And he closed his speech with a very famous challenge given in Joshua 24:15, "Choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord." So when a Jew reading the Old Testament reads Shechem, what's coming to his mind is all of these other associations down through the Old Testament, and then if you're a Christian, you ought to also be thinking about what happens at the woman at the well when Jesus is demonstrating the grace of God to the non Jewish Samaritan woman. Shechem is also the location of the rebellion of Israel when they crowned Abimelech, king of the Jews. That's always one of my favorite trivia questions. Who is the first king of Israel? Everybody wants to say Saul. It wasn't Saul. It was Abimelech. Abimelech was Gideon's son. Everybody said, "Wait a minute." Then say, that. "Well, the Judges chapter nine says they, the men of Shechem crowned Abimelech king of Israel." Well, God didn't put him there. I didn't ask you who God made the first king of Israel. I said who was the first person crowned king of Israel. It was it was Abimelech, and there's always an irony there. I, I love the humor in the book of Judges. It is just If you haven't gone through the tape series that I did on Judges, you really need to do that. That is a book for this time. And, in, uh, and you have the story of Gideon, and Gideon has this great victory where he defeats the Midianites, and at the end of, of uh, the episode, the people want to make him king. And there's this, this show of humility where Gideon says, no, no, I'm not going to be king. We need to worship the Lord. And then he builds an idol and leads them all into idolatry. And then he has a son and he names his son Abimelech, which means my father is king. So he's just full of all this false false humility and he's so into himself. But he doesn't really want to be overt about it. And then Abimelech, of course, leads the people even further and there's a tremendous rebellion and everything. But all of this is part of Part of the significance of Shechem in history. And then we come to Bethel, which means the house of God. He moves south and here we have a map. and Gideon start, I mean Abram starts off in the north and he comes straight down walking through the land, and he goes first to Shechem, then to Bethel, and he goes to the mountain that is between Bethel and uh, Ai. Between Bethel and Ai. And this was originally a Canaanite city named Luz, and it's located 11 miles north of Jerusalem at the tribal borders of Benjamin and Ephraim. So later it will be right on the border between the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. So this is a major city in the sort of the central part of Israel. This was a place where uh, Ab- uh, where Jacob had a dream from God, where he saw a ladder going up into heaven and angels ascending and descending on the ladder, and it was a place where God reconfirmed the Abrahamic covenant with him. So what's going on at Bethel? Once again, it is a reiteration of this foundational covenant with Abraham. Other things happen in Bethel down through uh, the Old Testament would make, make it crucial, but we're running out of time and I want to hit the, the, the last one. He goes south to the Negev, which is in the southern part of, uh, of the land. Now what's happened here? As he goes from place to place, he builds an altar. What's he doing? He is, as it were, laying claim to the land that God has given him. He is walking to and fro in this land that God has given him unconditionally, perpetually for all eternity to discover what is it that God's given me. See, this is where it comes home in terms of application for us. The Abrahamic covenant is analogous to our position in Christ. So the way you walk through the land is to study, to learn, what are the... Spiritual assets and blessings that God gave me unconditionally at salvation because of my position in Christ. See, we have to learn what it is that God gave us and then learn to live on the basis of that. And this is what Abraham is doing. He's walking through the land and at the key points. And these key points, archaeologists tell us, were were also central in the pagan worship of the Canaanites at Shechem, at Bethel and Ai, and down into Negev. These were places where the Canaanites had their high places where they worshipped Baal and the other gods. So Abram is walking through here, and as it were, he's staking claim to the land. This is what God's given me. Now, he doesn't fully experientially control the land ever. In fact, the only time he owns anything in the land is when he buys the, 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 the land from the... Uh, Hittites to bury Sarah and then that's where he's buried but this is his positionally and he has to learn to live his life in the light of those promises that God gave him positionally related to the land and staying in the land, related to the seed and trusting God to provide the seed and not to try to do it on his own and then uh, in terms of being a blessing and he does that in various ways as we'll see but the point here for us is to realize that just What Abraham is doing here is learning to apply experientially what is his positionally in terms of the Abrahamic covenant. For us, it's what do you have positionally in Christ? What do these things really mean? This is why we have to study the doctrines. This is why doctrine is important. It's not just abstract theology. It's not just learning to articulate the meaning of redemption or propitiation or reconciliation, but it's, okay, what are the implications for my life? What are the implications for the way I think about reality, the way I think about God, the way I think about the problems, the adversity that I face in life? How does the fact that I have been reconciled to God impact day-to-day living? This is the challenge for us. So we're going to see a lot with Abraham. As we go through this, we'll take we'll take time to look at various... Details uh, related to the uh, Arab-Jew conflict, the whole history. We're going to get all kinds of things this day. I'm excited about all the the, um, things we'll study, and I'm overwhelmed by all the things I have to research. But we have to go through this. It's all embedded here, but let's not lose sight of the overall issue here. And that is, based on what the New Testament says about Abraham, how does he grow? Faith, rest, drill, related to eternal positional realities. How do you grow? Same thing. Now, we have different dynamics because we have a completed canon of Scripture. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit. We have the filling of the Holy Spirit. So there's different dynamics, but the fundamentals are the same, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank You for this opportunity to study Your Word, to be challenged by this example from Abraham. We pray that we might be willing to take up the challenge, that we might be willing, like Abraham, to press on to the high ground of spiritual maturity. Father, above all things, we would like to glorify You with everything we think, say, and do because of what You have done for us and providing us such a wonderful salvation and a wonderful Savior in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in His name. Amen.